Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ringers podcast. My guest today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Joshua Hatton. Most of you will probably know him from Single Cast Nation, but we're going to talk about everything he's involved in. Joshua, welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being on here. Absolutely. So uh, let's you know start with the uh, Single Cast Nation. That's probably what you're most famous for, most associated with. Uh, do you feel that that's your primary kind of avenue in, in whiskey right now? That's a tough one. You know, I wear, I wear a lot of hats and, and I think there are some days that single cast nation has to take my primary focus. Like I can't be doing anything other than that, but then there are days with my impacts job where I kind of feel the same, but, but you know, single cast nation, we're 11 years now and it, and it feels you know, it's it one of these things, you know, Jason and I built together. So it's our baby. So I guess, I guess, yeah. So if I had to boil it down, I guess single cast nation would be, it'd be my baby. Totally fair. And uh, we'll definitely hit on the impacts connection a little bit later on. Sam was guest of mine a couple of weeks ago uh, and was a, a great guest. So I'm happy to continue yeah. that partnership going forward. That's great. So you're an unusual guest for me in that you have not only you have a professional mic setup, but you also have, um, <laughs> you know, a podcast of your own one yeah. nation under whiskey. So I do want to touch on that too. So, but let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into whiskey? I got into whiskey sometime in the, like the mid aughts, somewhere around 2005 ish. And, uh, my wife, my, yeah, she was my wife then, uh, <laughs> um, started going to a synagogue in Madison, Connecticut. And I was only just starting to get into drinks. Like I, I wasn't much of a drinker growing up. And, and by growing up, you know, obviously there's the 21 rule, but I, I was into hardcore straight edge for years. And it, it wasn't until my 20s where I even, started drinking beer. Um, so, so anyway, so we're together, we're at my synagogue and after the a Friday night service, one of the congregants had just about five or six whiskeys at a, at a table. And he said, um, and I went up to him cause it, it was kind of interesting. And, uh, he said, Hey, did you want to try whiskey? And I said, you know, I've never had whiskey before. And yeah, like, tell me, what is it about? And he said, he said, I'll make it simple for you. Do you, do you like sweet? Do you like spicy? Do you like smoky? Do you? And I, and I stopped him in, in mid do you. And, uh, and I said, I didn't know that anything could be smoky. I'm interested in whatever smoky is. And he, he poured just in like a little, like a little plastic cup. He poured um, some Lagavulin 16 year old. And it was a bit of a magical experience for me. Like it was, and I, I, I tell this story every now and again. And, and the point that I always make is that, that as an alcoholic drink, it wasn't something that was taking me from point A to point B. It was taking me back in time to, to camping with my dad and the smell of a campfire and like, 
you know, fall and, you know, mushrooms in the ground, you know, all of these earthy things. And, and that really captured my attention. And um, so much so that I started looking for blogs, I started buying a bottle here, a bottle there to see what I liked. And, and it was through the reading of the blogs that I found Jason, my business partner, and we started trading samples. And then, um, and I started my own blog because of the sample trades. And it was this time during the early-ish, you know, the mid 2000s, the aughts or whatever, where there weren't a lot of whiskey blogs. There was just a handful, maybe 12 or so. And, and we discovered that we were getting a ton of traffic to our websites every day. And we thought if people are coming to our website to make a buying decision on, you know, our thoughts of Lagavulin 16 or, or what have you, then maybe they'd be interested in whiskeys we bottled because we fell in love with that cask. So that, that, was the, that was the origin. I got this idea to start an independent bottling company. I reached out to Jason on Thanksgiving Day and, uh, and I told him of my idea. And, uh, and he said, that's great. You should do it. And I said, you don't understand. I, 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 I'd like you to be my business partner. And, uh, and he said, yes. And, and that was, uh, November of 2010. And then in May of 2011, we launched the company. And then in February, 2012, we started selling whiskey. We actually had whiskey to sell. What was the uh, first release that you did? It was a three-parter. So it was a Kilhoman four-year-old. So I was just looking for it on my shelf. It's somewhere. I think that's the whiskey I need to pour. Um, so Kilhoman, Kilhoman four-year-old, a Dalmore 12-year-old, and no, I take all this back. A <laughs> Kilhoman four-year-old, a Benriach 17-year-old, and an Aaron 12-year-old. And so the Kilhoman was a, a, um, just a single bourbon barrel. The Aaron was eight years bourbon, four years Pinot Noir. So like almost a double maturation. And then the Benriach was a peated Benriach, um, just in a second fill bourbon hoggy. And just all, you know, it was one of those, or, or those casks were, were ones where we said, would we open our wallets? If someone else had bottled this, would we buy it? And would we share it with friends? And that, that's how we kind of selected those three. As soon as you said uh, the Benriach 17, immediately I thought of the Septendecium, which I know I'm mispronouncing, but uh, that's- the... I, 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 I'm glad you tried. I don't even try <laughs> because I know I will slaughter it. <laughs> It's years of medieval studies. I should have been better with my Latin pronunciation, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so I will note I am drinking also a single cast nation bottling. Uh, this oh, was nice. the 19 year old Stones of Stennis from uh, okay. a year or two ago. Yeah. I have the 17 year old as well. I haven't opened that one yet, but uh, I'm going to finish the 19 first. But yeah. I, I, I love that distiller, it's my favorite scotch distillery uh are we allowed to say which one it is i don't want to you know step on any ndas or anything <laughs> um i 
basically, I can't say the distillery, but if you want to say it, I will, I will just say it's not Scapa. Okay. How's that? That's, yep, that's fair. It's an Orkney <laughs> distillery that is not Scapa. Um, I mean, in, in fairness, this isn't too much of a guessing game just because, you know, as you said, it's, a, it's an Orkney distillery. Yep. Scapa generally doesn't have stuff that that's, or that is that old. Yep. So it's not quite um, some of the guessing games you have to do in American whiskey sometimes with. Yeah. You know, right. When it's, when it's distilled in Indiana, it's kind of easy, but when it's, you know, Kentucky or anything else like that and yeah, figure out who it's from and all that, especially younger ones. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. so yes, this is my favorite scotch distillery and i was this was uh i think the first bottle i purchased from scn oh okay so i was a bit late to the party but i had some friends in the scotch world who uh had me sample a couple of bottles that you guys had produced a couple of barrels and it was just a great experience and i joined up right away oh that's awesome i'm i'm really glad to hear that i'm you know i'm always curious how people find us if they you know if they found us because of single cat, the name single cast nation, or if they're fans of say Highland park or other distilleries like that, you know, because I know, you know, I have my favorite distilleries and I will buy it, which is Imperial and mm-hmm. I will buy an Imperial regardless of, of who bottles it because it's a shuttered distillery. It's my favorite distillery. Um, and I am just a completionist, so. That's fair. I, I will buy most Highland Park things. Uh, I've got, I didn't go so much into the whole Viking line. Okay. Because yeah. I felt like that was, and I, I, in total transparency, I spoke to Martin Mark Bartson about this. Yeah. God, almost a year ago. Um, and I said, you know, I felt like some of the bottlings, some were great but others were more about the marketing or the bottle shape. And so I picked the two or three that I liked, got those and stick with that. But as far as the regular releases go, I pick up pretty much whenever I see a Highland park that is uh, not show filtered mm-hmm. kind of strength preferable, but um, I've got a signatory collection, unshow filtered collection. Uh, okay. I'm not sure what year it's from, honestly, but it's, you know, it's only 43%. So 86 proof, but whatever barrel they took it from was just magical on the mouthfeel where yeah. 86 is, you know, 20 points higher, but not hot. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so whenever I see a single cask of them, or especially if it's a sherry, a single cask in sherry from Highland park or an independent bottler that is in sherry or cast strength, not in sherry, I'll usually pick it up. You're going to love the 17-year-old Stones of Stendass. That's what I've heard. I'm I'm excited. <laughs> I'm I'm genuinely holding back on it. But have you if it, for any Highland Park fan, are you familiar with this one, the Highland Park Hyarta? No. So this came out in 2009 and it, it was a 12-year-old um just about 3900 bottles produced. Uh, I think it is my favorite Highland Park ever. Like, like official Highland Park, right? Bottled mm-hmm. by them. So if you're 
I'll, I'll work you up a little sample. So I'll send that off to you. If you're a Highland Park fan, I think you'll appreciate it. Definitely. I've got a couple of bottles like that with, um, you know, Wall Street, uh, New York Empire one. But my, uh, my favorite one of, as you say, bottled by Highland Park, it was a single cask chosen by uh, the Whiskey Exchange. Oh, okay. 16 years, fully matured in a first fill Oloroso Sherry butt. And uh, hmm. that thing, it's at like 65 plus percent. It, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a beauty. It looks like motor oil in the bottle. It's, <laughs> it's a beauty. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know. And it's funny to, to, to bring back your entry into whiskey story. There is a very clear divide between those who start peated and smoky and those who don't. Mm. And, uh, you know, there, it's funny cause I feel like there are more people in the, in the industry or in the, certainly in the, the media space, let's say, who have started on the peated side, as mm-hmm. opposed to maybe a bourbon side or an Irish side. Um, for example, I know, you know, Mark Gillespie started with, um, it wasn't log of 16, but another, you know, pretty strong aisle, I think maybe Ardbeg 10. Yep. Uh, and it's a, a peat head for sure. And uh, multiple other podcasters and such that I've spoken to who who enjoy scotch to begin with are usually peat heads. Yeah. Say. But for me, uh, yeah, Highland Park was the, I didn't like peat. I didn't like smoke. I didn't like that. It was more of a just straight up space cider. Mm-hmm. Then I tried a Highland Park and uh, now making my way through Isla, trying all the different distilleries. Ah, um, fantastic. Yeah. Currently, Kalila is my, uh, my number one. And that is thanks to Sam, who <laughs> gave me a sample of the uh, the Adelphi or Adelphi selection 12-year-old from yep. last year. Yep. Yep. Uh, went out and bought one of the last three bottles available because I just had to. Uh, <laughs> and then um, to your point about also your favorite distillery with Imperial, um, this one I both thanked and hated Sam for because he gave me a little sample of the single malts of Scotland 31-year-old. Imperial. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I, I Look, I, I have it in front of me. My yeah. one tiny sample um, given mm-hmm. to me by my friend V. And that's all I have. I don't have my bottle yet. I have a bottle on hold. How did you, did you enjoy it? It immediately became my scotch of the year. So, you know, I do a yep. King of the Hill system. It can be anything throughout the year, but right now it's King of the Hill. I had yep. never tasted anything like it. It was, it was different. And as you said, it's, it's shuttered. It's been shuttered for a long time too. So mm-hmm. it's not that they closed three years ago and there's still a lot of stock out there. Yeah, it's there is not a lot at yeah, all. So I respect your taste quite a bit for having Imperial as your favorite. I also can't help pity you a little bit in that there's so little of it, but um, but no, that single malt of Scotland bottle is that was really incredible. Um, but anyway, I digress. We'll get into a little more in Zampex in a little bit. So um I did want to circle back to single cast nation. So you asked. How did I come to SCM? Yes. And um, yeah. in yeah, in my case, it was kind of an, a name that I had heard in the ether. Mm-hmm. I was just tasting through things. 
maybe seen a bottle or two, but I didn't really know at that point, you know, the, what an independent bottle there was. It was still pretty early in the whiskey journey for sure. me. Yeah. And then I joined a group where there's a strong, it's a, it's a, on its face, it's a bourbon group, uh, an American whiskey group, but there's a very strong Scotch contingent in there oh, as well. Okay. Um, okay. And a growing Armagnac contingent now as well. Checks out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a couple of guys tried me on a few of the, uh, you know, older bottlings. So one of them included the, the Ben Nevis eight-year-olds that, Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yep. You know, it's kind of become a, a legendary release in some ways. Um, and yeah, I just started trying different things. And, and more recently I've had some of the American ones that you've bottled, uh, which okay. I'm definitely going to ask you about, uh, promise I won't get you into any trouble with asking about them, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, and I, I was really on a mission then and still am to just taste everything. You know, yep. I'll taste anything once. If I, if I really don't like it that much yeah. and I'll say, all right, that brand's not for me. But if I've, I try something and I'm like, you know, this profile is okay. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite, but I'll try it. So, um, Bowmore, for example, I just, I didn't love the core profile. Huh. I tried it. it was a little ashy for me. Um, what, uh, I, I, You'll have to forgive me. Uh, like we can go on a seven-hour tangent about about <laughs> Bowmore, but I but I do have to ask. Do you know? Do you remember what Bowmore it was? Yep. So um, I I did try a few, but the first one that I tried was just the basic Bowmore ten-year-old. Okay. Yep. Um, tried the ten. Tried the the Bowmore. What used to be the darkest, so the fifteen-year-old sherry. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and then I tried one in between there. I want to say it was a 12 year old, but I don't remember if it was like an official Bowmore 12 or something independent, but okay. uh, the Sherry cast one, I liked quite a bit because I felt like the, the sweetness and the brightness of the Oloroso yep. um, took a little bit off the ashes. So it was more of a cigar as opposed to like charcoal in my mouth kind of okay. thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, but in tasting through Isla, so I figured out. All right, I don't love the Bowmore profile. I'll stick okay. With others that I like in a little more, and like Lafroig, I don't like straight Lafroig, but last year's Cartridge release with the PX finish was just yeah. right on the money for yeah. me. Yeah. So. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm always curious. You know, Bowmore has changes almost every decade. You can like, you can you can you know, set your watch to it, how it changes almost every decade. And some decades are fruitier than others. Some are ashier than others. Some are incredibly like floral and sometimes soapy and weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I, I guess what I would say is, um, and you're, you're, you know, you're good because you, you're into independent bottlers and exploring other sides of the distillery, but if you start digging deep with them, you're going to find a really wide array of flavors. And you may find that there are certain decades from them that, that you like more than other decades. To that point, I just remembered the fourth pour that I tried from them, which was, it was a more 16 year olds distilled in 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherry finished 16 year old. Yep. I uh, liked it quite a bit. It was, 
it had a it had a specific name and i'm just blanking on that right now but i remember specifically that it was from 92 as opposed to let's say the aughts or yeah, i guess the mm-hmm. aughts for the other ones that i had tried um so yeah to your point maybe it's it's a decade thing that's that's kind of odd that they yeah change like that it 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 is and um <sighs> I mean, again, we can go down a really long Bowmore rabbit hole that maybe you don't want to be going down, but there are various reasons for the changes. Some of the reasons you can start, you know, doing distillery manager math and things like that and other changes, you know, have have legendary stories attached to them, which I, I don't think we should be getting into now. But but it's it's if you ever get Bowmore curious, you'll find some really interesting stories around the distillery and, th- and through the liquid. It, I, I just find it to be a fascinating distillery. I mean, I'll definitely try more. Yeah. I didn't, this sounds more negative than I mean it to in that I did not dislike it enough to put it in that category of, nope, not trying it anymore. Yep. <laughs> um, I just, I'll, I'll admit myself to be picky on it, but no, I'm, I'm always open to it. And you know, to that end with just Isla in general, again, I was not a peat head. I didn't like smoke at all. Mm. It wasn't even really like a Johnny Walker black was on the edge of too smoky for me. It was at one point. Okay. Yeah. So take that as you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, no, now I'm drinking the colada, the, which I, I swear to God, every time I say it, I pronounce it differently. Um, drinking the Kalila, uh, Highland Park, you know, all these, um, Stowning, I'm really into from Denmark right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like their stuff a lot. Yep, yeah, I had their, um, this is a, it was a European Union only release, but I managed to snag a sample of it the uh, Heather Smoke in PX casks. Mm, okay, came out like you know, December, January time, just unbelievable mind-blowingly good brought it over to uh mike at travel bar in brooklyn yep. to have him try it yep and it's just like damn that's good <laughs> some great stuff <laughs> oh so mike tasted it through you yep that's interesting because i saw mike i guess not too long after you met with him with the stawning and he'd mm-hmm. brought some in he had bottles there and he was tasting me on it uh, some sometime late last year or something like that. So that's that's cool. Little little whiskey geography happening there. Oh yeah, yeah. I brought him. Uh, I brought him that one. I brought him because he's got the. I want to say he's got the chaos and the smoke, at the yeah. bar. Yep. And I brought him a uh, another European only release, the barley. It was a blue label on there, triple cask finished, port, uh, ruby port, bourbon, and Madeira. Hmm. And that one was one where as much as the PX and Heather one just punched you in the face with mm-hmm. spoke and sweetness and like a barbecued pork slab kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was delicate, but you had to give it about 30 minutes because as you sipped it every five minutes, it was a completely different flavor. Wow. Okay. It, it, it's really an incredibly complex pour. And it's only, you know, between four and five years old and uh, they're putting some impressive stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I've had from them has been great. That's cool. 
Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so it, you mentioned earlier the uh, how the origin story for single cast nation mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. Uh, eleven years in at this yep. point, and I guess I'm I'm curious what the experience was like then versus maybe what the experience is like now of um, you know starting an independent bottler. Mm. Yeah, it. I, I think if someone were to start an independent bottling company now, they'd have a much more difficult time. You know, looking at 2010, 2011, the whiskey boom or the reboom of whiskey really only started around five or so years prior. Um, and so it was early enough on where we had distilleries that were interested in selling to us mm. and, and pricing on casks from brokers were uh, affordable <laughs> today. Not so much. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, so, so I think there was, there was a bit greater access. There were far more older casks available and older casks at, at good prices. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was just, it was a different time. You know, we, we had the help of impacts from the get go that they were our importers from the very beginning. And, you know, thanks to them, we established our relationship with Kilhoman. We, we remain the only independent bottler to have Kilhoman to bottle a single cask of Kilhoman and put the Kilhoman name on the label with Kilhoman's blessing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone else has done it. Not so much mm-hmm. with Kilhoman's blessing and Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has bottled a few Kilhoman's, but you know, it's, it's without the distillery name. So we're, so we're really mm-hmm. proud of that and thankful to Impex in the beginning to, um, to, to get us that access and to, um, Isle of Aaron Distillery and and others. So, jeez, <sighs> I got I, I lost myself uh, for a second there. So, so as so as far as um, starting the independent bottling company, I think overall we had a fairly fairly easy time doing it. Though I would argue, you know, we spent eighteen plus months due diligence, you know, ensuring that navigating the U.S. three-tiered system, you know, basically legally selling a bottle and getting it to someone's doorstep or, or somehow that we were following the law, you know, that in and of itself was, was a bit of a bear. So, you know, here we are finally established. We start the company. We figure out the U.S. three-tiered system. With Impex's help and with the help of others within the Scotch whiskey industry, we're granted access to some amazing casks. Um, but no one knew us in the U.S. And what's more is no one, and by no one, I, sh- I, sh- I should mean, you know, not a lot of people really knew what independent bottling was or what an independent bottler is. And so, you know, we felt that while we were trying to sell our own whiskeys, 
we were also trying to educate consumers on what an independent bottler was. So we were selling the idea of an independent bottler while trying to sell the whiskeys. That was difficult. And, and I don't think we made it very easy on ourselves because, you know, we, we really liked the, the Scotch malt whiskey society um, model of, of, of membership, right? Where you would purchase a membership, you would purchase to gain access to our whiskeys. And, and that was more a speed bump than, than anything. And, and once we lifted that, which was in um, uh, late 2016, uh, and then simultaneously, the beginning of 2017, we launched our retail range. That's when things started to kick off for us. Um, because, and when I say retail range, prior to 2017, you would go to the Single Cast Nation website, you would select a bottle online, you would purchase it, and it would get shipped to your doorstep by a retailer who could legally ship it to your doorstep. Um, but once we started bottling whiskeys that were exclusive to be on store shelves and never to be on our website, because we still sell on, on both, um, you know, both online and retail, but we never um, married the two, right? Mm. Um, once we did that, people started becoming a bit more familiar with us. And then it was, you know, once we got access to wild turkey, I know you wanted to talk about some of our American bottlings. Um, but once we started bottling wild turkey, first through our Whiskey Jubilee Festival for festival bottlings, and then to Single Cast Nation, that was when the bourbon community kind of took notice of us, mm -hmm. like really took notice of us. We did, you know, we bottled other bourbons before that, you know, a 15-year-old Heaven Hill and and some MGP and, and stuff like that. Um, but once we bottled the wild turkeys, then we had the bourbon fans and the bourbon fans who were scotch curious, interested in us. And so like that Kilhoman I mentioned, probably took us the better part of two years to sell that cask. Mm. And, and while starting an independent bottling company 10, 11 years ago, is easier than starting one now. Selling independently bottled whiskey now is easier than it was 10 or 11 years ago because, you know, we'll, you know, on some releases, we, we have to sell by lottery only because if we just made it first come, first serve, our website can't handle the traffic and people will pop a bottle into their shopping cart go to check out only to have that bottle pulled from the shopping cart. So it was a bit of a, you know, a problem, but, uh, you know, I guess a good problem to have quote unquote. Um, so we're, we're thankful. We're think having gone through, you know, seven ish years of having the damnedest time selling a bottle, a handful of bottles. We're now in, in the position where, we sell out in seconds or minutes and, and, you know, and that's just the U S you know, in 2019, we expanded to um, Canada and the UK and Sweden and Germany and Japan and Israel and, and bit a little bit in South Africa. And so we're really growing in ways 
that we haven't expected and are so thankful for having gone through just fucking hell of, of just trying to get anyone to, to, to pay attention to us. And now people are, and now we, we have to do even like even, even better. We have to ensure our, our quality standards remain what they are. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's a weird growth period right now. So hopefully that answers your question of, starting a bottling company and what it's been like with that, with the evolution of it. Absolutely. And uh, before we go into the American bottlings, if I'm interpreting correctly for both from what you're saying and, and what I've just experienced trying SCN bottles and on one hand, you've got, as you said, the, the barrier to entry of being an independent bottler and trying to sell that idea to an American audience. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, now might take it for granted, might not call them independent bottlers, might call them, you know, non-distilling producers or something else in the U.S. lexicon, but uh, there still aren't too many, what you would term independent bottlers, I guess, in the, for, for U.S. whiskeys exclusively, let's say. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess it depends. Like your point's a good one, right? How how do you for independent bottling, traditional independent bottling, the the idea of the label is always the independent bottler's name is the largest name, the smaller name is the distillery that they got the whiskey from, and then you've got your age. That's mm-hmm. traditional independent bottling. But there is, I would argue, a tradition of independent bottling here in the U.S. that simply looks different. And it's the idea of, of you know, Angel's Envy buying rye and, and finishing it in rum barrels or buying bourbon and finishing it in port barrels of, of High West. And, you know, Dave Perkins getting all that MGP and, and like mm-hmm. reintroducing rye to the U.S., the difference is the tradition in the U S was, was never to identify where it came from, you know, to your Mm -hmm. earlier point before, you know, Um, but that's simply our tradition. I would argue the companies that are bottling that whiskey are still independent of the distillers and therefore independent bottlers. They just, rather than highlight, Hey, it came from heaven Hill. They say, here's my great granddad's recipe. Isn't this a cool story? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there, <laughs> and that, that's, that's, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of joke. I think nowadays people are doing a, a better job of, of, of telling more true storage or having different marketing around it, but that's always been the tradition, right? This is, yeah, sorry. No, it, it, it's, I find it a fascinating dichotomy because you, you do have such a strong tradition in Scotland, I think, perhaps uniquely, but having the strong tradition going back of these independent bottlers for 30, 40, 50 years or more, mm-hmm. um, you know, the really old ones, like we're talking the Cadenheads, the Samaroli yeah. bottlings, things like that, where uh, it, you know, this is before even single malt was particularly a hot thing it was still more about the blends and so the dichotomy and mindset is so different like in america in america we're still dealing with 
can you call something a blended whiskey when it's a blend of, you know, three or four straight bourbons. So it's mm. good quality stuff putting in there. Like, look, I'm, I'm friends with the guys at barrel. Yep. You know, they'll put out great stuff that terminology wise is a blend mm. because it's literally you're blending more than one barrel. So it is by necessity a blend. Uh, but an American audience might look at that and say, oh, it's a blended whiskey and there's a little hesitance. Whereas in Scotland and Ireland and all these other different countries, Canada, especially uh, also blending is normal. It's 90% of the Scottish market is blends. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, so thank you. I did, so I want, that's why I wanted to ask about that, uh, that dichotomy of bringing kind of a Scotch tradition or a Scottish tradition of the independent bottling to an American audience. And you articulated well, the, challenges you faced in trying to get people yeah. to just buy the bottles um yeah and and i, I would just just really quickly because i, I want to make sure I, i'm clear i you know there are plenty of independent bottlers here in the u.s the problem is no one no one knew about them you know and talking with um chris at impex mm-hmm. they had a tough time selling sig- bottles of signatory port ellen because A, no one knew who Signatory was, and B, no one gave a crap about Port Ellen or, or vice versa or, or both. Mm-hmm. And, and so while we were growing up and helping that, the, the U.S. public discover independent bottlers, so were all of those others. And, and then on the American side of it, so were the Dave, Dave Perkinses of the world and John Little at Smooth Amblers of the world showing that side of it too. So, so I think, I think we're, we all in our own ways kind of, kind of grew up with it and, and helped the idea of it grow up here in the U S. Absolutely. And so when this will serve as a transition to, to the American bottlings, but when you first ideated single cast nation, Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps even before the name came about, did you always intend to eventually incorporate non-Scottish picks into that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, so we actually started off as um, Jewish Single Malt Whiskey Society. That was my society. And, and as we went on, we realized like hot damn, are we carving a niche? Um, you know, and we, we reevaluated, you know, our, our approach altogether. And, and over the course of a good many months, we, we came up with this name single cast nation. And initially it was with the idea of bottling single casks of scotch whiskey, be it malt, be it grain, be it single cast blends. And that was it. And, and that's because we, that, that was our love first and foremost. Um, I didn't love bourbon when we started single cast nation, I enjoyed it. And I would, you know, buy the, you know, the certain bottles that I liked, but I'd never sought it out. It really took me a while to grow to, to love, passionately love bourbon, which I do now, but I, I didn't love it early on. Um, 
And so it wasn't until we started the Whiskey Jubilee and we wanted to look at festival bottlings that we we entertained the idea of, of doing U.S. stuff. And it was in part due to necessity because timing-wise, we would not have been able to bottle a cask of Scotch whiskey for the festival. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, if we can't do that, can we can we do something in the U.S.? And, and the, the good folks at Heaven Hill were really keen to do something with us because, you know, this festival that we had, which was the Whiskey Jubilee, had kosher food. And, you know, Heaven Hill is a Jewish-owned distillery. It's owned by the Shapiras. And they said, mm-hmm. if you've got a Jewish whiskey festival with kosher food, then you should, you should have whiskey from the Jewish-owned bourbon producer. And we said, okay. And, um, and, and we bottled a really special 15 year old from them. And, and that was in working with them and in working and in understanding good Kentucky bourbon people, that's when we started to fall in love, you know, just really, it was more getting to know the people first and then the whiskey. And like, again, we, we liked it a lot. We didn't love it in, until that. And so I would say Heaven Hill helped us learn to love it. And, and then we started looking for others and it was through the Jubilee and, and, the, and you know, the exhibitors we had that you know, we started talking with them and see who would work with us. And if someone was brokering who we could buy from, things like that. So that's a good entry into the Jubilee, which, I'll be honest, I, I do not know much about. I have tried one of the Whiskey Jubilee bottlings. Mm-hmm. I believe it was the Heaven Hill, but I, I would honestly Ooh. have to really double check. Um, so, uh, you know, was it was it this bottle with the with the lone Chabadnik, um, the lone Jewish guy mm-hmm. sitting on the brown step? I don't recognize that as okay. much as I do the um, the kind of stepping stone of the right side of the label. Uh, oh, which all of our oh, bottlings had that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The the one in the screen right now um, in the middle. So yep. to the right of the, yeah. To the so, right of the guy. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, if that's on every bottle, then it's not going to help us, but it's not going to help. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, I, I, I've only tried one, but uh, it was quite uh, extraordinary. And so um, it's jumping ahead a little bit and I, which is fine again, organic conversation. Uh, But yeah, talk a little bit more about what the whiskey Jubilee, I mean, you described what it is in, in practice, but you know, how that came to be and, and what its status is now. Sure. So in 2012, um, whiskey fest, um, which is, I, one of the earliest shows I've been to, and again, was like one of my big entrees into whiskey after my synagogue, um, Mm. experience. Um, they, for some reason, I don't know why, for some reason in New York, they switched their standard sort of Wednesday, Thursday event to a Friday. 
and and that wasn't good for the Jewish consumer. And if if pre two thousand twelve, had you walked into the New York um, whiskey fest, you would see more yarmulkes than you would kilts. Like it was a very hmm. Jewish heavy attendance, and and religious, right? Because it, they're visibly Jewish, right? So so right. so they were religious, and. So when we started in 2011 and started selling whiskey in 2012 um, and then Whiskey Fest switched to a Friday night event, which is, you know, the Jewish holy days, the Sabbath, um, we had distributors, um, you know, we had distributors and importers and brands reach out to us and say, you guys are the Jewish whiskey company. Um, here's what just happened. Can you do anything? Like they had people, um, they had people flying in from Japan to launch Nika at the, at whiskey fest who couldn't launch it the day of whiskey fest. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit, a bit of a nightmare situation for exhibitors. And so they reached out to us and said, can you put something together? And that was four and a half weeks before whiskey fest was so we reached out to um john and amy hansel and and let them know of the situation and that people were reaching out to us and we we want to do this festival but we're not looking to step on your toes you know we're we're not taking your consumers away from you they simply can't attend your event and they understood fully and you know they're they're both wonderful people. They 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 gave their blessing. There there was no issues whatsoever. And so whiskey jubilee ended up being the Thursday before the Friday whiskey fest, and um, and that was that was 2012. And, and there was maybe 22 25 tables, something like that. You know, 250 people, something like that. Um, and then it just kind of grew from there. And it was in a synagogue at that time, the first year. The second year was also in the synagogue, a different synagogue. And um, and that, that second year is when we launched the first Whiskey Jubilee Festival bottling. That was the Heaven Hill. And then in year three, we wanted to move away from the synagogues because, you know, again, back to that original idea of, we were Jewish single malt whiskey society and, and, you know, fuck if that doesn't pigeonhole us, we wanted to move out of a synagogue and put it into a different venue that was welcoming to everybody, Jews, non-Jews, men, women, what, whatever. Um, and, you know, I'm really proud to say over the years that it ran, it went from, you know, a hundred percent beards, dudes with beards to probably, a 60 40 split of men to women and in New York, maybe a 70 30 split of Jews to non-Jews We we then opened it in Chicago and that was probably a 50 50 split. And then we opened it in Seattle as well. And that was probably 30% Jewish and 70% non-Jewish. And so it was, it was really nice to have this uh, whiskey event that we tried to make as inclusive as possible. And, and, and back to that idea of inclusivity, 
we made sure that none of the exhibitors would have models um, behind the table. Everybody had to be either brand direct or importer direct or be able to talk intelligently. You couldn't just be pretty. You couldn't just be handsome. And there's a very strict policy of ours that we had from the very beginning because we wanted to create this environment where everyone felt welcome, everyone could have a meal and everyone can learn and have fun. And so we even capped the attendance, 450 people maximum each event so people could have conversations. You're paying your money to get in, not just to drink whiskey, but to learn about it as well. And so, so that was the goal of it. And we, we mothballed it. I won't say we killed it, but we mothballed it in um, uh, 2018. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallaki, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And this is a question I was debating how to intro into, and I think the Jubilee works very well for it, but I want to take us out to kind of a 30,000 foot view and a really broad swath of history as well. Sure. Um, you already mentioned, you know, Heaven Hill is owned by the Shapiro family. It's a Jewish owned distillery. It's the largest family owned distillery in the U S maybe in mm-hmm. the world. Um, and Jews in particular have been, I would say they've held an outsized role in, in whiskey production management, um, I can't really speak to uh, to consumption as much, but um, certainly in, in roles in the whiskey industry mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. And it's something I certainly didn't know about until getting into whiskey history. Yeah, uh, but it's really fascinating. You know, everything from the legal side to the illegal side during Prohibition, and <laughs> and I'm sure before that too. But that's you know, uh, so to put it bluntly, I mean, do you? Do you feel that through your intention to create an inclusive event, one that um, caters to, while not being exclusive to a, a Jewish clientele, as well as you know the idea that you could have been called the Jew, you, know, you were called for a while the Jewish Single Whiskey Association yeah. uh, company, rather. Yeah. Um, do you feel a part of that heritage at all? And did that come to mind at all during the growth of this process? Um, that there should be a focus on it? Or ra- rather that you were kind of joining the line of um, outside oh. Jewish influence and in management and such in, in whiskey. Got it. And having that connection to the 
the people here in the U.S. before. Got it. Right. Like the Shapiros of today, the Rosensteels. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, um, you know, similar to you, I didn't find out about that until a bit later into, you know, my whiskey journey or this or this company. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't until after we had established the company. It wasn't until 2013 when I found out Evan Hill <laughs> was owned by the Shapiras, right? Mm-hmm. So it was it was never that. And you know, we we weren't a drinking family. You know, my my grandfather always had you know some Scotch whiskey blend around, but it was just in case people were coming over and they would mm-hmm. ignore it just as much as he would. And in, you know, my, at, at home, we had our, some Johnny Walker and some doers and probably some Jack Daniels, but it was never, we just simply weren't whiskey drinkers or drinkers period. Um, yeah, I just, I'm the, I'm the first generation, uh, Hatton to be doing that. (laughs) I, I feel that I'm the same way. My, family was never much of my dad really couldn't drink uh my mom didn't glass of wine every now and then um my grandparents never really did they also had a bottle of scotch a bottle of triple sec and a bottle of banana liqueur for some reason um in the closet oh there's got to be a cocktail out of that yeah anyway sorry i I, I don't want to know what it is though it's like (laughs) it's it was so weird clearing out their house like god eight years ago or so and just the it was only six bottles or so but the yeah. assortment of bottles that were in there was the banana liqueur the triple sec the creme de menthe and oh, nothing yeah, that went yeah. together you know yeah oh an apricot an apricot brandy bottle from the 60s oh wow um, that okay was still good um okay still good but uh yeah no one really did another branch of the family great uncle and great aunt they five o'clock every day they had a glass of scotch together usually Mm. johnny walker black i think maybe double black in the more recent years uh, before they passed but that was it yeah and even now my family's like why the hell did you get into whiskey like (laughs) it doesn't make sense um and uh, i can also say to this day that despite having tried over god i've got 1400 written reviews i've probably tried close to two three hundred more than that um, that I'd never been drunk. Oh, I just okay. don't, one, it's a high tolerance, but I also just don't really enjoy the feeling of, of it. Yeah. Yep. Um, but also I came from a family where that just wasn't a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, I digress. So, um, yeah. Do you I at least dip, dip a toe in tipsy? Um, I can get relaxed. Okay. There you go. That's okay. about as far as the feeling goes. Um, yeah. and I'll be, in college, it was not for a lack of trying, but um, <laughs> legally, of course. Uh, no, I just had a, I had a very high tolerance. Um, yeah. So while my friends were, you know, quite literally on the floor and under the table, I was winning a Guitar Hero and playing along. And people are just looking at me like, "How was he doing that?" You know. So, <laughs> uh, but but yeah. So so in in but in in looking through the history of, of SCN and and your own. Um, history and we also share i think we're both you're in the um jews and booze facebook group yes 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 Yes, i am um so for me finding 
a bit of a niche community there as well of, of uh, Jews who enjoyed whiskey and celebrated and liked to taste it and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It was very new. And so I found out about this history that goes back 100, 150 years. Um, so hence why I wanted to ask you about that for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it really is a, a cool history. Um and I, I don't I don't know the whys or what for us. That's I'm sure someone's got to write a book one of the day, these days, or maybe they have already. I'll see if I can get uh, Clay Risen to write that as his next book. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed him when Bourbon came out um, in September, and I've gotten to talk to him a bunch since. And um, Great guy. I like his writing style as well, so I think it could be very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, yep. I probably burned my bridge with um, F. Paul Packold after my review of his Buffalo Trace book. Um, but he would also be a great writer to do that. So maybe. Yep. Um, Watch your bridge, your bridges. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. But hey, it's your it. honest opinion. So there you go. That That's it? you got to respect that. That was it. Yeah. I'll be very frank. I only took issue with the last three pages and that's where the issue started. But anyway, um, so with um, moving into the, the American bottlings of Simcast Nation. So you mentioned a couple of them, the Heaven Hill 15 year olds, you worked with Wild Turkey several times. Um, and one of your most recent releases of the American was Wild Turkey. Was it 12 year, 13 year? We are, what day is it? The 12 year old is going to be bottled three days from today. Uh, so we have a 12 year old and a nine year old coming out that we, the 12 year old was 12 when we selected it. The nine year old was nine, was eight when we selected it. But yes, those are, those are about to come out. The last two were a nine and a 10 year old. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I won one of the, I think the 10 year old and I split the bottle with a friend of mine who also does reviews. So we quite enjoyed that. Um, and I have to ask force about the 24 year old pre-fire. Mm-hmm. And this is where I will not get you into trouble. Um, but I'm curious how, what the process was like behind the scenes to figure out and, you know, a name that would be a, suitable and accepted and um, basically having to say everything but the name of the distillery and just what that was like trying to figure that out. Yeah. So the, the good news was um, we, we bought it from the broker. And so it wasn't from heaven held directly. Right. So, so the whiskey itself got to 12 years of age and then and then was sold into the UK apparently for a project that that never came to fruition spent another 12 years in cask and then was put into tote for two years mm-hmm. um, and so so yeah so in buying it from the broker it was based on a 14 year old contract that they had mm-hmm. that really the only stipulation was, don't print the distillery name on label or marketing materials. That's, that's what it said. And, 
And I guess we could say the name if we wanted to. We just, we don't because we feel kind of like you had said, we basically said it without saying it. Um, You know, for, for, for people who want to dig and they say pre-fire, okay. Is there a distillery that caught fire, right? All right. When did that happen? When was about 24 years ago or so somewhere (laughs) on that. Right. And, and so, um, and, and it was really, it was Jason's idea. The idea for the label um, was Jason's and usually label ideas are mine. I'm the, um, I'm the guy who likes to come up with that stuff. Um, Or at least I'm the, I'm the loudest in the room. And um, anyway, Jay, Jason had this idea of he, he just wanted to see a really dystopian, you know, death by fire picture in the vein of like, uh, you know, Van Gogh, you know, and in the scream, you know, I'm, I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with that piece. And, and we tasked Mo McAuliffe, who's, who's our designer with that. And, and she just, she nailed it. She nailed it first time around. And so we said, we're just going to call this our pre-file, our pre-fire bourbon. I mean, it's, I just thought it was brilliant. And I don't mean to blow smoke at you for saying that. I, I, as you said, if you have to follow the stipulation of that contract, you can't put Heaven Hill on the label, Mm -hmm. just as you can't put the Orkney distillery on the label. Mm -hmm. Um, Then to just go, if you'll excuse the expression of us both being Jewish for me saying going whole hog on on a label that was just like, you know what? We can't say the name, but just go for it. Go it. Uh, And hearing the, uh, so this is actually very pertinent, very time sensitive. So I had just listened to, I believe, the most recent episode of One Nation Under Whiskey, your podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, but you were talking with Mo yes. about yep. label design. And uh, of course, that was that label was one of the ones you were talking about. And you spoke more broadly, more than just that one label, but more broadly about, I would describe it as, making the label part of the experience mm. as rather than it just being, you know, a slip of white or cream colored label with some printing on it, you know, something that's really a part of the experience of a bottle. Yep. Um, and I mean, it's something I appreciate. It's, it's a, I have trouble appreciating it because sometimes I know whiskey brands can take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And they have really fancy looking labeling for a really crap product behind it. Um, you know who you are. And um, but many, many hands raised, many hands raised. Yes. And uh, but in this case, you know, it's you said it brings this dystopian taking the 24 year old pre fire, for example, it brings this dystopian yeah. feel to it. Um, and in some ways, whether purposefully or not, in that way, it also kind of evokes what I'm sure the Shapiros were feeling in November of 95, yep. 96, 95, uh, when they're looking the next day going, what the hell are we going to do? We just lost all this whiskey. 
um, death by fire kind of thing, 60 years into the company. And so going to labels more broadly, the single cast nation labels are, are fairly um, standardized from bottle to bottle for the most part, 24 year being an exception. Um, is that label in general going to be changing or is it more about specific bottlings that you really want to let out the artistic side a little bit more? Um, well, a, a bit of a, a two-part answer. So for standard bottlings, that packaging is changing. Um, and actually, hold on. Oh, I took the bottom label. I took the bottom label off. Damn it. Um, so we're, we're switching to a bespoke bottle that will have our logo, um, uh, printed right on top and then below is going to be a label with very specific, you know, all of the specific information that you're familiar with, you know, the, the distillery, the cast number, the cast type, the fill of the cask, the ABV, if it's been finished, and then the, the flowometer that, that, you know, the, how sweet it is scale from one to mm -hmm. 10, how smoky it is, so on and so forth. So that, that will remain on, but we're another thing we're switching because you may notice a lot of our bottlings have a, a synthetic cork. And sometimes they've been, we've used actual corks and we've, we've had some issues where corks had gone bad mm -hmm. and, and that's something we, we've never wanted to deal with. So we decided we're, we're actually going, um, screw top. Screw top. God yeah, bless yeah, you. But, but you know, a, a good, <laughs> a good solid, screw top, you know, like Westland, I think does a great job with their screw top really classy. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've, we've gone with. God bless you for that. The, <laughs> look, I, I love a good quirk as much as anyone else, synthetic, natural, you know, they, they make good toppers and some of them are great, but you're right. There are so many that have gone bad over the years. I mean, I'm a fan yep. of, of dusty Blanton's bottles and mm -hmm. those corks you have to pull like, dead 90 percent uh 90 degrees rather straight out if you want to have a chance of it holding together otherwise it just shreds in a yeah. spiral yep wild turkey older course from wild turkey are, are known to be just crap yeah real sorry trash. sorry yep. to the russells <laughs> <laughs> um the liquid inside is fantastic but the corks are crap are crap. yep um so uh yeah it's it's nice to see that both from a consumer standpoint uh and of course, you know, a screw top's not going to oxidize. It's not going to leak, ideally, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that's it. And like I get it, corks feel fancy. Awesome. Do you drink a cork? No, you drink the whiskey inside, and the the cork can start to degrade. It could start to lose mass. It'll let oxygen in mm -hmm. quicker. And allow your whiskey to oxidize more. Like th there's a lot of reasons to get away from cork, um, and more reasons to go to a screw top. Like you don't have to worry about all of the issues that come with cork, be be it natural or synthetic. So, so yeah. So it you know really to to your point, you said consumers. Like, what do we as consumers want? And that's what we put on our label. That's what we put on our bottle you know, et cetera. Um, so that's our standard packaging that will get changed 
with their ninth release that um, should be out later this year. Um, but we're going to continue doing artistic bottlings. We're about to close out what we call our woodcut series mm-hmm. where we had um, a 30-year-old Beaumont, a 30-year-old Imperial, a 28-year-old, we can't use the distillery name, but the label is called Laughing Frog. Everybody can do the math. Um, and then and then we will have our fourth and final of the Woodcut series. Um, and I'm trying to see if there's another bottle around me that I can show you. Um, but uh, but we'll do something else because because, uh, you know, I think whiskey is art, but bottles are really nice to look at. There, there's a reason why people have bottle collections and are mm-hmm. hesitant to recant or decant into smaller bottles as their whiskey starts to go down is because they're nice to look at. So why not have a cool label or a cool outer packaging that makes sense, that's not ridiculous and doesn't, you know, increase prices like that that pre-fire bottling while yes, it had fancier packaging and had a cooler label, it was still just 295 bucks for a 24-year-old bourbon. Like we we want to make sure our pricing is not getting to like just silly town, you know, like it's about the whiskey for us. And if we can have cool packaging to go along with it, then we will have cool packaging to go along with it. That's absolutely fair. And uh, what you what you spoke to just then about, uh, you know, decanting to smaller containers i mean i'll admit i fully I, mean, I do that when i get to about half of a bottle i have 375s that i order and i'll put mm. them in those um partially for the quirks partially for space it's a new york city apartment and while it's <laughs> nice and large it's not that large um but what i started to do was when i first started finishing the bottles i would keep the bottles i had some shelves put up and you know i'd keep the empty bottles of ones that I really liked and then started running out of space there too. Yep. And <laughs> you know, some, some bottles are very unique. Like I'm looking up my shelf right now, like uh, decanters are one thing, but um, like a bottle of, I have a bottle of Kentucky Prince. It was pre Willet. Mm. Um, I think KBD, but not, not a hundred percent sure on that, but from 1991 and it's this weird, bottle shape it's very angular it's hexagonal mm. but um elongated hexagonal it's very odd and okay. uh it's not within reach right now where, I, where i'd grab it down but um the point made that that one i wanted to keep because it was so unique yeah but for me if it's something that is to put it bluntly just a round bottle or a wine bottle type thing um with a label on it i would after i decanted the whiskey I would then remove the label from the bottle. Huh. Okay. And I started putting it in my tasting notebooks. You know, I'd have a couple pages mm-hmm. at the end for notes mm-hmm. and whatever. And I just, you know, either stick them on if the glue is still good or I'd use a glue stick, whatever necessary, to just put it in there. And so now it's a lot more space efficient for sure. <laughs> um, but I can also, you know, as I'm going through my notes of, of different whiskeys I've tried, I can flip to the end of the book and I can see, oh, these are things that I've tried and I've owned and it doesn't involve having shelves and shelves of empty bottles. Instead, it's yeah, just the labels. 
Um, so for me, the the packaging thing is very important because as you said, the cork, if it's cork, it can leak. So I want to decant it so it stays good mm-hmm. longer. And mm-hmm. frankly, I have such a volume at this point that there are plenty of things that I have open that I don't drink fast enough. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, and I can see from the shelf behind you, I think you have the same problem. So the, um, this is, this is know, the start of it. Yeah. I've, <laughs> it's pretty yeah. bad. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. It's bad. Um, God bless my wife. And, uh, so, yep. so yeah, so I started taking the labels off and, um, you know, I did that with one of the single cast nation bottles I finished that I, I took the label off because I didn't have room for the bottle itself, but the label was impressive. I wanted to keep it. It was important. It was unique. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if it's a if it's a bottle of something that's just like, just throwing one out. If I buy a bottle of Jim Beam Black. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm not necessarily going to take the label off of that. Like I might do it once because I just for to do it once, but I'm not going to do it every time I have it because there's no point. It's duplicative at that point. But if it's a one-off bottling, if it's something cool, if it's different or unique, I want to keep that and have that as a yeah. keepsake. And so now when I design my own tasting note journals i have 10 or 12 pages at the end that are just blank and Mm. you can do whatever you want with them and for me i fill them with sticker labels as i and besides just the labels of course with the sticker craze for single bottlings gotta have a couple of those in there Uh Um, so (laughs) so glad that's dying off a bit Uh, but you know gotta have some of those in there and that way I get to have the memory with, with much more space consideration. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I tend to throw away almost all of my bottles um, with the exception of a few. Here, here's one of them. I still don't know what to do with this. Oh, this the uh, CGF, the CGF, yeah, turkey. CGF turkey. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll take the label off that. That that's a good idea because I've, there's bottles I need to open or need to finish mm-hmm. to make, to make room. And uh, so I'll ask you offline how to take yeah. labels off. Absolutely. And, and like I said, the unique ones, like uh, I have a bottle of Rock Hill farms that I finished mm. last year. That one, it's not a, it's not a label. It's embossed directly oh. onto the glass. Yeah. Uh, yep. Decanter style. So that one, fine i'll keep the bottle on that one mm-hmm. you know it's nice it's square it fits well <laughs> yeah exactly um, but uh yeah for other things as unless it's just a really special thing or it's a special bottle it makes more sense but anyway i digress i want to focus more on on you i think it would sell out lickety split if people if people knew about glenn elgin like they do now back then um and then I would say our we bottled a mezcal that um, was from the Delamigo Distillery. You usually find Delamigo's mezcals under the Fidencio label. Mm-hmm. They produce for Fidencio. Um, we did a we did a, a reposado uh, espadine with them. We actually we bottled wild turkey. We sent the wild turkey cast down to them we let the mezcal get to 10 months of age. And I, when I went down to Oaxaca um, to be there, when they opened the cask, they opened the cask. I'm smelling, Oh man, that smells fantastic. And I look up and I see like these, you know, big glass um, 
jars or demijohns or whatever of, of a really dark liquid. And I said, ooh, what's that? And they said, well, that, that was an Añejo mezcal. It spent five years in Jack Daniel's casts and, and it's been sitting in glass for the past four years. And uh, I said, can I taste it? I tasted it. And here was my fear. I'm a mezcal purist. Like normally I don't want wood anywhere near my mezcal. Um, and I was nervous about the Reposado, but we'd back it no matter what, right? And it ended up being a great mezcal. But this one that we had nothing to do with, I tasted it. And my fear was five years in oak would have the oak completely masking the agave and everything that's beautiful about agave, everything that makes agave spirits beautiful without the need for a cask, right? Mm -hmm. And that oak put the agave on a pedestal and it said, no, 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 I'm, I'm just here for good looks. Pay attention to the agave. And people totally missed out on it. There's still some on the shelves. I'm sure you can go to like wine search or whatever and look for it. People ignore it because they don't want mezcal that has touched wood. They, they want that unaged um, agave spirit. And for good reason, because it's phenomenal. It's my second favorite spirit after Scotch whiskey. Like I'm, I am a follower. I'm a, I'm a devotee. Um, but when purists taste this, it's an aha moment for them. It's like, holy shit, I didn't think that the agave would still be there. And what's more, I didn't think the agave would, would take the foreground and be more present than the oak. And, and, and then the oak showed well, right? It's like, do you remember, and, and I hate to invoke his name um, because he ended up being a terrible person, but Bill Cosby in his, in his old special himself he was talking about his friend who was trying to like, like sell him on the idea of cocaine. And he's like, oh man, you know, it just amplifies everything. You know, it just makes everything more. And he said, yeah, but what if you're an asshole, right? Then you become more of an asshole. But, but the point with, with this is the oak played the part of cocaine for his friend <laughs> in that it made that agave experience more. It just amplified it. And, and so like, that's one that I really, if people dig mezcal or are interested in mezcal, uh, that's one that I wouldn't sleep on. And that one you can still find on shelves. I might have to ask you to try that one because I've been uh, pretty open on the podcast that I, I just don't particularly like agave spirits. Okay. Um, and it's not a matter of the, the quality of spirit. It's just, you know, I don't like agave syrup either. There's mm. just something about the flavor profile. I just don't like. Mm -hmm. So I could be coming at it from the opposite perspective where I could never be a, a mezcal purist, mm -hmm. but just as I maybe couldn't be a Lafroy purist. Yeah. Okay. But you put it in the right cask or the right finish where whatever note I don't like um, is countenanced in some way, mm -hmm. balances it out. And yep. you know, I'm willing to try it. I've been trying some tequilas recently. I still, like I said, I'm still just not on the agave train, but you know, profile is, is to the person. 
but yeah, that sounds like something I would try because I definitely like other things finished in Jack Daniels barrels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, if you, if you get a chance to try it, if, if I remember, you will have to remind me because I'm really terrible at samples. Everyone will tell no. you this, no um, the, the Highland Park Chiarta, and then I can, I can pull a sample of that mezcal. Absolutely. I, I think you may like it. I wanted to kind of circle back at the end to the Impex connection. Sure. Um, as you said, they were your importer from the very beginning. So you had the relationship from the very beginning. Um, were they always, or rather, not were they always, but um, do you consider SCN to be uh, kind of a substrate of Impex? You know, under the Impex umbrella, let's say? Uh, yeah, I mean, right. It, the line does get blurry <laughs> in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, Jason and I are 100% owners of single cast nation. And, and that just is what that is. However, it's so clear to us that we could never have grown single cast nation in the way that we've grown. If it weren't for the help of impacts, um, because they didn't really have to help us out. You know, I, I, I got on with Sam earlier on, when I had my blog, which it was jumalt.com, it's still up, but there's there's no new notes going on there anymore. Um, and he would send samples and I and I would review those samples. And I'd quite often buy bottles from those samples because all the stuff they sent was just really in my wheelhouse. And so when we you got looked, me on that too, it's okay. Right? It, it's it's yeah. and and I I I say this. With all honesty, right? There's a reason I'm employed at Impex. Like I am, I am a devotee of of Impex, just as I am with Mescal, because I think they're both doing great things. I happen to be working in a job that I love with a family of people that I love. That's so incredibly special, and for me to be a part of that while owning single cast nation, which is a part of the impacts portfolio, which is a brand that couldn't have really gotten off the ground. If it weren't with the help of impacts, the lines really feel blurred. You know, there there's, it feels like an appendage in, in a way, you know, it's, you know, I, 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 I don't ever see a time when single cast nation wouldn't be a part of the impacts portfolio because we are where we want to be and need to be and under like the really careful eye of of our sales team which which you know is just a kick-ass group of people who give a shit and and that's special and it's not i wouldn't say it's not common but i would say this is like, it's kind of extraordinary. It's, it's a really special team of people. And so, yeah, like I'll, I'll get really lovey dovey. Like when, when I start, when you, right. It's like single cast nation impacts, it becomes peanut butter and jelly for me. That's, that's fair. And, and I know that there are many whiskey companies to use a general term 
they wish they had that kind of relationship with yeah. whether it's an import or exporter, whether it's the, you know, the parent company. Um, some do, but mm-hmm. I think anecdotally, it's the the exception rather than the rule. And yeah, in speaking yep. in speaking to Sam, and uh, even before I knew about Impex, I happened to speak to a couple of other either. Uh, employees of Impex or or companies associated. So I spoke to uh, you know Jay Cole was oh yeah the second yep. second episode I did was about Kyo whiskey and yeah Jay sure. was on um, spoke to M and H spoke to Great Lakes uh, not to Great Lakes sorry mm-hmm. um, Lakes Lakes oh Finger Lakes no um, the uh, British company in yeah in, in England um, Spirit of Yorkshire wow that was. Oh, spirit of your. Oh, yeah, that's very different. <laughs> yeah, I I was thinking lakes. I was like, I know it's England. Get there yeah, a little farther. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, spirit of Yorkshire and and a couple of other. Uh, uh, you know, I'd spoken about Ohishi and Fukano when mm. speaking about Japanese whiskey and other scenarios. And suddenly, I just kind of looked at the Impex website, and I was like, Wait a second. We're all here. <laughs> yes. I recognize that guy. I recognize that yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, when I got a chance to talk to uh, to Sam about all these different companies and and how everything mesh mesh together and all that, uh, it was fascinating to hear his description of it. And it was, but it's very at its core, it's really the same as what you were saying. It's this family of brands, family of mm-hmm. of independent bottling lines in particular that fit together with people yeah. that are passionate and people that can really speak to it. And having spoken to these people independently of the impacts connection, it, it was very clear that that was the yeah. case. Um, so in terms of uh, your position and role at impacts, one of the questions that I asked Sam that I, I definitely want to ask you as well is mm-hmm. when you're choosing something a barrel or a series of barrels uh, that, you know, you're choosing, let's say five or six of them, and you have to choose which one's going to go under which independent bottling line. Which one's going to go to mm-hmm. Adelphi, which one's going to go to Single Months of Scotland, which one's uh, going to go maybe to Single Cast Nation. Um, how, do, how do you kind of go through it and say, you know, this one really belongs here versus under this line? Or do you at all? So that's an interesting question. So uh, just to clear it up, that's that's not actually how it works. So while we do select the casks that will come into the U.S., the way it works is Adelphi will come to us with the list of casks that they have available to go under their Adelphi okay. label. And then Single Malts of Scotland, which is owned by Elixir Distillers, does the same. And, and, and so on. Um, mm. And, you know, with, with Adelphi, with Single Malts of Scotland, it is, they're pre-vetting their casks. They're saying, you know, the, these are casks that are, that are in our ownership that we think are ready to be bottled. And then they send them to us and then we make the judgment call is this right for the American market? And, and I'll give a really quick example, right? If someone sent us uh, a heavily sherried whiskey that that had a good whack of sulfur on it, you'd say, well, that's not going to work. 
and it won't necessarily work for the U.S. market, but it would work well for the German market who have the palate for that, right? And so, and so they're going to think that it's worth it, but they rely on their own distributors slash importers as to what will work in their various markets. And so that's how it works with Adelphi. That's how it works with single malts of Scotland. Um, when it comes to single cast nation, Jason and I make our selections and, and, you know, we, we let, you know, Sam and, and Chris know what we have coming down the pipe and, you know, to date they've, they've never questioned us. They, they trust our palates and, you know, as far as single casts that come into the U.S. under the Impex portfolio, whether it's an independent bottler or distillery, I'm on that tasting panel. So, so Sam has always, you know, trusted my palate. So, so in that way, single cast nation is typically, as well, always has been, whatever Jason and I select, that's what comes in. And then when it comes to the Impex collection, that's mostly Sam and Chris um, selecting those casks, but I have had my own input in there as well. Whenever they ask me, I, I'll, I'm more than happy to give my input. I appreciate that. And, and thank you for clarifying because I, I, I really did not know how yeah. this might work. And uh, they're part of why I do this and it's passion project is to learn and to learn how import system works and, you know, <laughs> That's that's how you do it by asking questions and talking to the people who are in it. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it we spent eighteen or twenty four months just trying to figure it out. It's not easy. You're going to spend a long time sorting yeah. through it. It's it's a bit of a mess. <laughs> yep, absolutely. But uh, you know, I figure if I come out of every interview, if I learn something, if the audience learns something, if one listener learns something, hell, that's. That's good with me. That means the interview was worthwhile and it was, it was worth doing. Um, so with that, we will close out this interview for now. Uh, probably have you on in the future again. I can see us going a bit longer, of course. Uh, and, we'll, and you know, you're not that far away. We'll have to meet up for a drink in person as well. Yeah, that would be good. Now that I know that uh, travel bar is a haunt of yours, I, I, I always look for excuses to to go into New York, or I should mm-hmm. I shouldn't say that. Let me let me rephrase that. I'm always looking for excuse to avoid New York, but Travel <laughs> Bar makes it really difficult to do that. So I'm 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 up for a, a Travel Bar meetup. Look, I'm I'm New York born and bred. I have <laughs> great pride in this city in this area, but I'm under no impressions to everything that comes with it travel bar is i think 11 miles away from me and at minimum it's usually an hour drive oh shit okay oh because you're Uh, queens right yeah so it's it's whatever parkway i want but it's eventually to the bqe which me and that's where that's where most of the trip takes place gotcha (laughs) Um, (laughs) but no any excuse that i have to go down there uh as well is is one um become friends with mike and being able to bring stuff for him to try and he's always got a bottle or two that he wants me to try. So it's yeah. a lot yeah. of fun. Um, oh, if, yeah. Please know everything I said about New York was tongue in cheek. I, uh, we, I, can, I <laughs> we can handle it. And if you listen, yep. and you can't handle it, find a different city. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to handle it. It's New York. You got it. I've met so many people who, and they'll end right after this is that I mentioned before tape that we, before we started taping rather that, 
used to be medieval studies. I entered mm-hmm. the master's program with a cohort of 25 people, myself included. I was the only person who was native New Yorker. Only two of the other 24 were willing to entertain the thought of staying in New York past their master's slash doctorate. Everyone else was just, I have to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) It's too busy. It's too loud. There's too much noise. It smells in the summer, which yeah, all that's true. It does. Um, (laughs) But, and there's traffic. If you drive, it's terrible, but um, I can't live anywhere else. I'm just home, right? It's home. I'll travel anywhere in the world for as long as I want. But whenever I come back and I see that skyline on the plane, nothing like it. There you go. But anyway, with that homage to New York, uh, we'll close out this interview. Joshua, thanks so much for taking the time with me tonight. Um, As always, close out. Where can people find you? Uh, Firstly, thank you so much. It was was really a pleasure talking and going down rabbit holes. Um, So they can... Jeez, I guess on the on the socials and stuff, they can find me. Uh, Whiskey Cherub is my Instagram. Um, there's One Nation Under Whiskey podcast, and you can find that on your favorite podcast app. And then uh, store shelves, Single Cast Nation bottlings, and singlecastnation.com and whiskeygeek.com whiskeygeektours.com we also own a tour company and apparently the world is stopped ended some parts of it um and (laughs) so we are looking at hosting tours when that's possible and uh that's it fantastic and i'll make sure to put uh links to as many as i can in the show notes of this episode so you can follow and become a part of single cast nation and i'm glad i did i'm sure you'll be happy to as well so Joshua, thanks again. And this has been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast.